Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. Peter, welcome to the War Room. Great to be here, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Okay, so your book has something that, in the title, that's almost unbelievable. Democrats and Republicans came together. Is this a, right. this, wait, this is a this is a fiction book, right? <laughs> no, this is reality, and it's amazing reality. And I had that reaction as well when I first started to learn about this event uh, during World War II. And um, so, yeah, it's amazing. It did happen. So let's start maybe with, with just a, a logical question then, which is how much different or how much maybe how, how much closer were the parties then versus today? So on issues, were they pretty far apart? Were they pretty close? About the same as they are today? Because um, go ahead. That's exactly the right question. And, um, you know, I think the parties were almost just as divided. Of course, that's a a judgment call, right? How do you measure that? Very difficult to measure. But what you've got to remember is that Franklin Roosevelt was reviled as a radical by the Republicans of his day. Um, After all, um, he had formed a, a large governmental program to make sure that people who were retired or disabled got payments. That's called Social Security. It was decried as socialist and Marxist and radical. Um, He made it possible for workers to to form labor unions, um, passed a law to strengthen their rights to do that. And he supported big programs to uh, build the nation's infrastructure and uh, bring people back to work after the uh, depression. So um, he was hated and reviled as as a radical and Marxist and socialist. Does that sound familiar? Because to me, it does. It sounds a lot like what's going on today in America, the the name calling, the the attacking as far left. Um, So there was tremendous amount of division uh, on on the eve of of the Second World War. And he's the first and only president to go beyond the two terms. And so there's a different element of that altogether. Um, One of the things when I think about this period of of history, and we, we talk about this in the show for some time is, you know, kind of, it seems like most people agree that Watergate is when this big shift happens. The JFK assassination is kind of opening the door, but going back to the, to the FDR period is the media and the public's view of the Oval Office of the White House of the presidency um, would, I would guess be easier to garner um, unity amongst the public because especially during wartime, it seemed that, there's probably a higher respect for the office during this period of time. Um, Well, the thing to keep in mind in that regard, there's a lot there, but one thing to keep in mind is that um, FDR invited Republicans, two very prominent Republicans to join his cabinet in June of 1940. Um, The second world war, the United States didn't end the enter the second world war until after Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941. 
so roughly 18 months later. So um, there was plenty of division in the United States and not a lot of reverence. And there was tremendous animosity directed at FDR, not only for the reasons, uh, uh, economic generally reasons and, and business oriented reasons that I named a little while ago, um, but also because um, there was a very strong isolationist movement in the country. Um, many people had been very distraught over the loss of 115,000 American soldiers' lives in World War I. They didn't want to send American soldiers back into another war in Europe just a generation later. And many people wanted nothing to do with the entering that war or even preparing to do battle with, with Adolf Hitler. Um, so there was not a lot of respect <laughs> for the White House at that time. Um, but if you're, if you're looking um, for the, the broader transition and, and attitudes toward the White House, there are so many factors that come into play. Um, we can discuss some of those further if you'd like, but um, I would just say that in this era, there was tremendous animosity toward the White House. Okay, so we mentioned in the title FDR, and we also mentioned this other guy who's not nearly as popular as him, uh, Henry Stimson. Stimson, yeah, Stimson, yes, Henry. So, yeah, who's that? Yeah, so he is uh, was a uh, Secretary of State uh, under uh, FDR's Republican predecessor, Herbert Hoover. Um, he was a long-standing, respected Republican. Uh, he had been. Uh, Secretary of War once previously, um, prior to his appointment by FDR to that post. Uh, and that was in the um, uh, administration of uh, William Howard Taft. So some 30 years prior. Um, and he also uh, was very close to Theodore Roosevelt, uh, the Republican president. Um, so, and he also um, was a um, very strong critic of isolationism. He believed that the United States should do more uh, to get involved uh, in international disputes and to try to advance um, democracy um, and, and global relationships and global trade. Yeah, maybe unpack that isolationist uh, mentality a, a little bit more because um, even today, you know, I don't know, it's, it's always hard to hear someone's full thoughts on isolationism um, because we're, we, we live in the snippet world. But what does that term mean in, the, in this time period? When you're saying isolationist, what would those people have took the term to mean? Well, um, first and foremost, they did not want the United States getting involved in any foreign wars. So in uh, 1936, key isolationists um, backed the passage of the Neutrality Act. And what did the Neutrality Act say? It said that if there is a war between two countries, two or more countries, the United States automatically cannot pick sides with either one, cannot send aid or arms of any kind to either side. It, it, it legislated, uh, it codified neutrality and remaining isolated from a war. 
Um, that's maybe the, the most extreme uh, embodiment of isolationism and the most formal embodiment of it. Um, so, um, and this became particularly important when um, Hitler and, and Mussolini uh, began spreading their wars and, and attacking other countries. Um, and uh, particularly um, in September, 1939, um, when Hitler's forces invaded Poland, uh, the United States and FDR in particular wanted to lend assistance to their allies, particularly in Great Britain, which was brought into the war at that time as well. Um, and the Neutrality Act forbade that. It, it blocked any kind of assistance, even though um, our ally Germany, uh, excuse me, our ally um, Great Britain was at war with Germany. Um, so what happened at that point was that FDR switched and he joined with Henry Stimson and others who said the Neutrality Act must go and the United States must take um, an active role in supporting um, its allies around the country. For example, in today's world, if you were to shift that act forward um, eight decades, if the Neutrality Act existed today, we would not be sending any assistance to Ukraine. We would be blocked from it, even though Russia was the aggressor and brazenly invaded Ukraine, we could not. So that was what the house, house, how much power the isolationists had is that they were able to pass that Neutrality Act. And in fact, FDR signed the Neutrality Act and he cited, signed expansions of it twice. Um, and so in 19, late 1939, he realized it was terribly mistaken. He apologized to the American public and he called for its repeal and Congress repealed it. And um, uh, with a bipartisan vote, by the way, um, and uh, then the United States began assisting Great Britain. What made, con what made Congress willing to repeal this? I believe that um, the chief driver for that was sheer recognition um, that Henry Stimson and others who were saying, you're just putting your head in the sand if you if you don't take action in these global conflicts, it will come to you sooner or later. They convinced the Congress that the United States needed to pick a side and that need to be on the side of democracy and freedom. Okay, so the acts repealed. Um, we're still, it's a bipartisan act, still a long way from unity, right? Um, so, you mentioned Pearl Harbor, which you know everyone is is quite aware of, and we we hear about it. What role and how was um, FDR's post Pearl Harbor speech? How much influence did that have on uniting the country? Well, certainly the attack of Pearl Harbor itself rallied the country, and um, FDR's speech. Uh, a day later also um, brought the country together tremendously. And um, there's no question that Pearl Harbor went a, a very long way to producing the kind of unity that FDR had hoped for. Um, 
And uh, a similar thing, by the way, had, had happened in Great Britain, um, where Winston Churchill was brought together, uh, or was brought to power by an alliance of labor and conservative um, after um, the Nazis swept through um, the Netherlands and Belgium and, and France. So um, definitely the, the, the attack of Pearl Harbor did a tremendous amount to bring the country together. And so Stimson, he comes in in 1940, right? Correct. Yeah. So he's been there a year and a half, give or take at this point. Yes. Yeah. And so what, so up into this year and a half, until Pearl Harbor just kind of used as an anchor point, what's Stimson doing along this period of time? So he's working closely with um, uh, George Marshall, the um, Army Chief of Staff, and with uh, the Navy Secretary uh, Frank Knox, who, who was another uh, prominent Republican. And um, uh, in fact, he had been the Republican vice presidential nominee in 1936 and was an extremely sharp critic of FDR. So he, when, when FDR brought Stimson into the cabinet, he also brought Knox in. And uh, those men, as soon, uh, Knox and Stimson, or Knox and Stimson, as soon as they joined the cabinet, immediately began uh, working with Congress to expand the powers of the United States military and to prepare for war. Um, perhaps the most significant achievement in that regard is the passage of uh, the conscription law um, and uh, in uh, August of 1940, uh, in which 16 million Americans um, uh, were registered and 400,000 uh, had to report for duty shortly thereafter and, and with ongoing um, masses of soldiers coming in. Um, ultimately, um, some 10 million Americans would be drafted in the war. One thing that's hard for me to envision is um, 1940 lifestyle. Like um, when we talk about uniting people, you can see FDR making presidential addresses over the radio or whatnot, uh, but there's, there's no CNN, there's no Fox News, there's no YouTube. Um, how influential in the everyday life and thought process of the American was someone other than the president? Uh, that's a very um, difficult question to answer, I must say. Um, and, um, and I should be clear, I don't think, I don't mean for my book to suggest that there was um, absolute unity. Sure, sure. Um, there were plenty of political disputes that carried on through the war years and they pitted Democrats against Republicans. And, um, but what you had, however, um, was um, once Stimson and Knox joined the cabinet, um, other Republicans came into the War Department and, and began supporting FDR um, very strongly. Um, he won his reelection bid in November of 1940. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I would note that um, shortly after the appointment of Stimson and Knox to FDR's cabinet, public polling showed that a very strong majority of Democrats and also a sizable majority of Republicans supported that, that move 
to build national unity. Mm. Um, but it's no there's also no question that the media um, was quite fragmented at that time. Um, there's certainly no Leviathan like Fox News today. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, I, I think it's it's quite difficult to assess exactly how much uh, unity there was and how much people were all in agreement. Well, I mean, I guess I'm more asking, and I think you, you actually touched on it there. You know, if you're in 1940, how much could you, you know, you can't turn on, I mean, I don't watch cable news, but if you turn on cable news, it seems like there's always a senator, a congressman, a governor, someone's always being interviewed. And so if you want to know who's talking, the, 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 the talking head in D.C. is for whatever party, just turn it on and watch it. I, the access to um, the top echelon would have been, there, there's, you get on YouTube and watch press conferences from Department of Defense or whatever. So if you want to see these people now, you can. Um, back then, I guess it would have been harder to see them. But, but what you said there was interesting, which is when FDR brought in Stimson and Knox, then that started to shift the top level Republicans uh, view and brought others into the war department. And that would have had a effect for other local Republican elections and people tied up. So from a, from a standpoint, people would have aligned in certain ways. And so the average voter um, would have said, oh, okay, well, listen, I'm with this guy and I'm with this guy and this guy's tied to this guy. So, so that would be one way in which the country would, would, would get unity is through kind of a top down way, whether or not they knew who Stimson was on a, on a more direct level. Certainly, and and one of the interesting um, uh, aspects of their relationship uh, and the relationship between FDR and his Republican appointees was that the two secretaries, Stimson over war and Knox over the Navy, um, routinely gave press conferences. Um, and this particularly was true as the, as the war carried on. Um, their comments from Washington were constant. And um, Stimson had a weekly news conference. Um, and um, and they didn't come out and identify themselves as Republicans in every conference, of course. Sure, sure. But it, everyone knew who they were. Everyone okay, so, knew that yeah, they were so, Republican appointees. Right. That's so, like, that so the average American of, could have accessed them through a weekly press conference or whatnot then. Yes. Okay. And, that, and I think that sense of, you know, we're working as a team. Mm -hmm was carried by osmosis mm -hmm. through to the American public. Yeah. And so was it difficult for Stimson to work with FDR um, at various times because of a Republican-Democrat split, or once he was on board, was he kind of all in? You know, the reason why Stimson becomes irritated with FDR in the early years is in the early years of the war is not so much because of political discord, but because FDR's management style uh, just drives Stimson to distraction. Um, he described it as uh, chasing a vagrant beam of sunshine around a vacant room. Um, FDR would begin meetings with light conversation and jokes and reflections on history and making family connections and Stimson was all business all the time. He wanted to get straight to the issue and decide the matter before him. And it would drive him crazy. He, he, they also, in 1942, had a very serious and, and protracted dispute over middle, military strategy. Um, Stimson opposed a British move to invade North Africa 
uh, FDR sided with Churchill on that, essentially, um, overriding both Stimson and General Marshall and others in the US Army, um, and supported the invasion of North Africa. And that is, of course, what ultimately happened in November of 1942. FDR took a tremendous risk there by um, seizing command of the US Army in a very bold way. Um, he took, uh, he would have faced immense blame had it gone wrong, um, but it went right. Um, so anyway, but that's, you asked about the disputes between them, and right. it was largely over personal management style and other issues, not over politics. And by 1943, they were in a truly um, harmonious, amicable relationship, and it carried that way through until FDR's death in April of 1945. Yeah, and so that's when Stimson leaves office formally, right? Actually, Stimson would remain on under Truman until September of 1945 and would play a a very interesting role in the um, decision to drop the nuclear bomb. And he had played a key role throughout the war in development of the nuclear bomb. Yeah, because he's he's somewhat in charge of the Manhattan projects or oversees them on some level, right? Correct, correct. And what was his view of the of the uh, Manhattan Project? Well, he viewed it as uh, of enormous significance and um, one of the top priorities uh, of the U.S. military. And um, he paid tremendous attention to it. And um, he was one of the few people in the government who really had a broad understanding of the program and what it was intended to do. Um, as I relate, um, he ultimately um, ended up in a, a, a difficult um, debate with President Truman because he argued that the United States should let Japan give Japan the opportunity to surrender um, and to keep its emperor on the throne, uh, believing that keeping the emperor on the throne would induce Japan to surrender. Um, Truman and his secretary of state, James Burns, um, rejected those views. And um, the so-called Potsdam Declaration um, issued in July of 1945, made no reference to keeping the emperor on his throne. Uh, the, J- the Japanese disregarded the declaration um, and Hiroshima and Nagasaki were bombed. Um, that's a, uh, a very difficult part of the bipartisan relationship. So the relationship that began between Stimson and Truman, uh, Stimson and FDR, excuse me, was extended to Truman, but it it was not as cooperative. And um, there was not as much of an exchange of views between the two men as there had been between uh, Truman and FDR. Now, were were Stimson and FDR on opposite sides of the Japanese internment camps for a period of time? Um, They were both um, integrally involved in the decision to place Japanese Americans in concentration camps and 
um, in my view, they both equally deserve blame for that decision. Didn't Stimson initially oppose it or not? Or not? Stimson raised objections. Okay. He was concerned about the impact on constitutional rights of Japanese Americans. Um, but it was, it was not enough uh, to convince him that it should not be done. Okay. And he proceeded to carry it out. Okay. See, I, I thought he had a little bit more opposition, but you're saying he was more, it wasn't a strong opposition. It was just more, I've got some, I've got some concerns. We need to talk about it, but ultimately it, it wasn't like a hardened position that he was convinced of. It was not. Okay. It was not. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. And, and so um, when you think about an issue like that, so we talk about, you know, the war uniting, is there, how do we view that part of these relationships to where the, now we have a bipartisan support or something like that? You know, I, I think you really hit on an important issue there. And um, uh, I, I believe that, that bipartisanship and the willingness of FDR to bring in these Republicans played an absolutely critical role in um, the success of the United States in the Second World War. Um, but I do not believe that bipartisanship is always good. Just because two sides agree on something doesn't mean it's right. right. So bipartisanship is only good when it is in support of greater democracy and freedom and the good of the United States. Um, it's not always good. <laughs> um, Democrats and Republicans strongly supported segregation for decades and decades. And so um, I don't take the place, take the view that bipartisanship is always good to be clear. <laughs> no, I, yeah, yeah, I don't think you, I don't think you did by your earlier comment. I just, it's just, when we have history discussions um, and all the characters are dead, you know, it's, it's, you know, right now where we're at in time, um, they'll be talking about a couple hundred years from now or, you know, seven years from now or whatever. And, you know, we'll all be dead. And so they'll be talking about it and you want to be able to talk about these things, um, with understanding of the times, which is why I was asking some of the questions earlier, um, and then try to evaluate the, the pros and the cons, because you can hear today in DC, we need bipartisan support. I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't know. Do we, do, do we want bipartisan support for this particular bill? Because I'm not sure I like this bill and bipartisan support doesn't mean it's right or wrong. And so um, bipartisan support to your, to your, your book's point, which can bring the nation together, overcome this big evil empire, um, you know, fight the Nazis, fight the Japanese, all, all, all this stuff. Okay. Well, that's one argument, but then there's, but then you can't say, well, because it was bipartisan, it's under this umbrella of everything is good. And so we have to be able to, to, to pick and not, not pick and choose, but parse out what happened and what's good and what's bad and what led to these things. Because that's why I was curious about Stimson's opposition, because if he was truly opposed, uh, which is kind of what I'd, I'd understood, but you're, you're the expert here, so I'll, I'll take your word. Um, then what did persuade him to go over? Was it a, a hierarchical thing or was it a, a good argument? But if he's, you know, where you're at, then it's a little bit different. So these are all questions that, that make history uh, fun to study because it lets us hopefully bring an ethic forward to contemplate on. Yes, absolutely. And um, there, there are a couple, there are three big moral issues um, during the Second World War that um, I think um, FDR and Stimson, no matter how bipartisan and, and how they tried to reach across to each other, um, I think it can be said that they 
they did not succeed on. Um, one of the other one big one is the, the decision not to desegregate the United States Army as it went through this massive expansion. Um, Stimson was concerned that there would be violence. Um, of course, there was tremendous racial violence in America in those days. It, it even would put some of the things we see in America today to shame. Um, um, but um, does that mean that was the right choice? I, I don't know. I, I mean, it was decided to desegregate the army um, just years later by President Truman. Um, so um, that's one of those decisions that hangs over these men. Um, uh, the other one is the reaction to the Holocaust, which was um, uh, muted and, and um, seeded a lot, yielded a lot to fears of an anti-Semitic backlash in America. Um, so there are a lot of things on which, uh, in which their reactions were um, not tremendously um, good, <laughs> to put it mildly. Yeah. But I think that in all, though, I still think that um, it is worth examining how they work together and understanding what they did to uh, bring together and defend democracy and make it possible for us um, to this, today to be um, able to enjoy our constitutional rights and, and um, debate how we can improve our society going forward. Absolutely. And I'll just add one more to that, which is um, the, the partnership with Russia, which ultimately has led to countless proxy wars. And I, it's hard to say that they, you know, they, they, those would come, of course, but, but it is a question that, that when you look back at this time period, it's like, man, oof. <laughs> or, you know, it was, was Patton who wanted to go uh, finish the Russians off war too. You know, perhaps you should have done that, of course, that by the time FDRs did. But you get in these questions, and those are questions that we don't know how it would have played out, of course. We just know what we have. And so, uh, going back and trying to be fair to them and their time and understanding what they did and what they, um, that, that's one thing. And then how we bring it forward to today is another. Okay. Um, two questions before I let you go. One, what was the biggest surprise that you found uh, while researching this book? And then two, what's the one question that you would like answered that you couldn't get answered? Um, the biggest surprise for me um, um, was when I learned that um, by reading Henry Stimson's diaries. And by the way, it's just, the Stimson diaries are an amazing document. It's um, some 10,000 pages. Um, he kept them from the early 1900s all the way through his career. And um, uh, it's often quoted, by the way, by many historians as a, a contemporaneous account of what was going on. Um, but um, I learned that in um, August of 1940, as the presidential campaign was playing out, um, the uh, FDR and Stimson decided to approach Wendell Wilkie, who was the Republican presidential nominee, and to urge him not to discuss two uh, very important um, aspects of war preparation that FDR was undertaking. One, um, was the effort to give battleships to Great Britain, 50 battleships to Great Britain. Um, and the second um, was the conscription program, vastly expanding the US Army. They viewed those items as critical 
to national defense. And they wanted Wilkie not to attack them, not to use them as campaign issues. Mm. Um, Stimson, as a Republican um, uh, and as a lawyer and prominent uh, attorney for, on Wall Street, knew Wilkie very well. Um, and he approached Wilkie on behalf of FDR and in support of this effort and actually funneled to Wilkie um, War Department documents setting out the status of the war in Europe um, as part of this effort to convince him to join the program and, and support FDR in this way. Um, and Wilkie agreed. And um, uh, some of this has been reported before. It's never been reported as far as I know that Stimson actually passed documents to Wilkie. Hmm. Um, so that was, the, to me, the most surprising thing. Um, and of course, later, Stimson would bring Wilkie more firmly into FDR's camp and expanding this bipartisan alliance such that in early 1941, Wilkie would be among the most um, recognizable uh, proponents of the Lend-Lease Act under which the United States sent massive amounts of mil military aid to the British and to the uh, Soviets later. So that was the, the big aha moment for me was digging yeah. out of the records, this fact that, that Stimson had taken that step in an effort to bring Wilkie into his, uh, into al alignment with FDR. Um, and in terms of uh, the one big thing I wish I had uh, been able to discover, I will say that um, uh, there are still many, there are questions that remain unanswered um, about the decision to drop the bomb um, and um, the communications with the Japanese. The Japanese were coming forward um, asking for peace and asking to be able to keep their emperor. Um, what exactly was known um, by President Truman um, and Joseph Stalin is hazy. Um, and um, so I think there could be more scholarship in that area where we, we could, people could find more things possibly, or it may be lost to, to history. I don't know, but that's what I'd like to know more about. Okay. A lot. I have one more question for you. How did you publish two books? And this book hadn't come out just yet, but it's gotten two weeks. How did you publish two books with over 800 pages in one year? Like that's impressive. Oh, I think there must be a mistake there. I, I didn't publish the other one in one year. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. that, that other one is, yeah, the other, the, the uh, Robert Cutler book came out in 2018. Oh, it says 2022 on here. Okay. Yeah, sorry okay. about that. I was like, I was, I, was I wish doing I some... could lay claim to that, but I'm afraid not. Okay. I was doing some show prep. I was like, how did he pull that off? That, that's crazy. Okay. All right. Where do you want us to send people to? To send, I'm sorry, what? Send people to social media. I mean, obviously we're linked to the book, but you have a website, oh. social media. Oh, yeah. Um, how about my webpage, petershankel.com? Okay. We'll link to it there. Thank you so much for your time today. And uh, any, oh, any upcoming projects? Um, working on um, uh, a book about um, uh, anti-Catholicism mm -hmm. in uh, the 1920s um, and uh, the defeat of a Catholic presidential candidate. Okay. I got a book about Catholicism somewhere. I just got in from Ireland. I was trying to find it, but I can't. I can't see it. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for your time today. All right. Thanks. Have a great day. Thanks for listening today. Really, really appreciate it. If you could drop a five-star review wherever you may be. We keep getting on great guests and that's because you keep supporting that show. 
If you want to know more, go to warroommedia.com. Ever wonder if the deep state murdered President Kennedy? If Hillary Clinton is kidnapping babies? If the COVID-19 virus is part of a plot to turn your country into an evil dictatorship? Or if Tom Cruise is a shape-shifting alien reptile? Hi, my name is Michel-Jacques Gagné. I'm a Canadian author, teacher, philosophical historian, and recovering conspiracist. I'm also the creator and host of the Paranoid Planet podcast, a monthly variety show that combines fun conversations, long-form interviews, thoughtful essays, film and book reviews, and a little bit of silliness on the subject of, well, you guessed it, conspiracy theories. So if you want to learn more about conspiracism, if you want to become a better critical thinker, or if you just enjoy listening to interesting conversations in an entertaining format, check out the Paranoid Planet podcast at www.paranoidplanet.ca. That's www.paranoidplanet.ca. Or anywhere you download your favorite podcasts. Until then, make sure you keep the blinds closed, avoid talking to strangers, and, just to be safe, avoid drinking the water out of the tap. You'll thank us for it later. But don't take my word for it. Ask this guy. What do you think tap water is? It's a gay bomb, baby. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? Ugh, ugh, serious crap. I'm sick of being social engineered. It's not funny.